Jakob Ingebrigtsen is going to do in the 1500. He has time to look behind him. 20 years of age, and he is on top of the world. But coming down for a maiden national crowd, Cornwall is a champion. Altitude training has always been a hot topic for middle distance and distance runners. Many of our best runners spend large chunks of the year at altitude, sucking in that thin air to stimulate the body into producing more erythropoietin, or EPO, and therefore more red blood cells, which of course carry oxygen around the body. We thought it would be cool to catch up with a man who has spent the last decade pioneering altitude training systems, mainly altitude tents and altitude rooms. Rico Rogers is a retired professional cyclist and first experienced altitude training whilst competing professionally. He is of course of the strong opinion that without it, the chances of true success at the elite level is limited. We hope you enjoy it. Before we jump into it, a quick word from the sponsors of this week's episode. ASICS has just released the new Gel Nimbus 26. With cloud-like cushioning and soft grip, it delivers unmatched comfort. The new Gel Nimbus 26 shoe is ASIC's most comfortable shoe yet. Now available via ASICS.com and specialty running stores. This episode is also brought to you by Fractal. Exciting news from the world of running apparel. Fractal, a Queensland-based startup founded by passionate runners, has just launched their equity crowdfunding campaign. With a mission to revolutionise sustainable performance apparel, they're inviting you to be part of their journey. Investment starts from just a few hundred dollars, making it an incredible opportunity to support the known part of a brand that's making waves in the industry. Fractal isn't just about hats, they're about community, sustainability and innovation, having already made a significant impact with over 100,000 products sold worldwide. Don't miss out on this chance to invest in a company that's doubling down and making a difference. Check out the link in our show notes to express your interest and learn more about how you can join Fractal's exciting adventure. Expression of interest will close March 4, so be quick. I'm here with Rico Rogers. You're in New Zealand at the moment, mate. How are you? Welcome to Runners Tribe. Thanks. I'm, uh, I'm really good. You know, New Zealand's beautiful, good getaway. Do miss home, but you, uh, you struggle through on a holiday, don't you? Nice. Family holidays, it? Yeah, yeah. The kids are, kids are here and my wife is here and... Yeah, it's good. It's kind of good to have capped off last year and just before the school starts back, which is, as most parents know about this time of the year, is kind of like uh, you look forward to the beginning and you look forward to the end. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, man, I've got I've got some kids myself and, um, you know, I am looking forward to school going back, I've got to be honest with you. Um, holidays is hard, hey, but... Um, Mate, just for everyone listening, this is not a paid episode or anything like that, okay? Rico, I've known Rico since, I don't know, man, when it was like 216 maybe. Um, I consider him a mate and it's just something that I thought, shit, it might be, might be really interesting to get him on and talk about attitude training um, because 
it's a huge topic in endurance sports and even you know all the way down to middle distance you know 800 running and up really um and i just thought you know there's going to be interesting interesting discussion and so it's not paid for but i, I think there's going to be a lot of people getting some stuff, stuff out of it mate and i just thought we'd get off that off the table um second of all mate is let's just quickly your background you used to be a professional cyclist back in the day can you just give everyone like a brief kind of rundown in that so they they know um, a little bit about you yeah so i suppose i started cycling late um in life i was actually down on mountain bike at first and then raced the worlds through that um for a handful of times in new zealand and then gave up on that started work and then started riding because I I actually couldn't I couldn't see myself going back to university so I was like oh, I'll just be a cyclist so um, did about six months training uh, went to Belgium eventually picked up a contract um, won won races in most parts of the world um, and then eventually my team folded and I had children and then from there I kind of when I was racing I knew that I knew that everyone was doing EPO um, and I wanted to have a similar um, I suppose performance gain. And then that sort of the, the genesis of it, you know, I sort of knew that you, you could do it with altitude tents. And then my wife was pretty keen on sleeping comfortably, um, which I was too, but like never really gave much thought. It was kind of like you just hit a bigger hammer at that nail and she'll be right. You'll, you'll get better, you know, get the gains. And then I just sort of started making more and more, user-friendly systems and then eventually tipped a pile of money into it and made a really great one um and that's sort of where we're at now sort of selling to most of the um top top tier road cycling peloton and then sort of making inroads into into runners as well um nice but, yeah so i presume during your, your pro cycling days like you were doing like a lot of high altitude training camps and that kind of introduced you to the to the you know the to way you training is that right or were you actually sleeping in in tents back then um yeah well actually i got invited to a um, one at Qinghai lake in china which was sort of averaged at about three thousand two hundred meters and then um i i'd learned and done a lot of research before then about altitude and then with this race it was a really high level and i wanted to do well because basically wanted to get a better contract for the following year. Um, and so I did a mixture of training at altitude and sleeping at altitude um, and build up for that. Um, and then I won a stage and I may have gotten second or third in another. And so I was kind of like, ah, oh. and this is against flat out dopers, um, some of them. Um, and so I was like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that really works. And so then from then on, um, I believe I got offered the, the tent that I was using to purchase. And so I did. Um, and the following year, I went to another team. But yeah, that's really my yeah. my hardened road. So um, in a obviously but, in the cycling world, is if you don't dope and if you don't um, you know do a shitload of altitude training, do you obviously you probably have just absolute Buckley's chance of making it, right? Um, yeah, I mean, there's some rare people that are just naturally talented, but I think it's becoming less and less common that you can do it without and even if you yeah you're going to be pushing shit uphill realistically um yeah it's it's possible you know hugely talented people but then they can go faster and, and if you're not doing it and it's not part of your program um i think it, it should be a part of 
the toolkit, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so a quick sum, I'm going to dive deep into some running specific stuff for everyone listening in a sec and go into kind of what Aussies are doing at the moment and what, you know, runners around the world are doing. But quickly, just a quick summary of box attitude. So I know you offer, you have like tents that people sleep in, but you also can actually go to people's bedrooms and, um, you know, kind of install systems so that it's, they're not sleeping in a tent, they're just sleeping in their own bedroom and it just brings the level of nitrogen up and your level of oxygen down and creates kind of a semi-hypoxic environment. Is that is that a very, is that a kind of brief, accurate summary or how, how does it work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, ours is a fairly elegant and simple solution, but yeah, it's essentially increasing the nitrogen level, decreasing the oxygen um, to a, obviously, our systems flood it with nitrogen and that um, the oxygen amount is, is really safe, even if you were breathing 100%. Um, what we're pushing into the space um so that's one of the things that i really liked about about our shoes is always safe you know it doesn't and also just to, to your earlier thing yeah i'm a fan of everyone's systems you know like um if you can't afford our system yeah you should definitely use altitude because that's going to get you the gains um it's just that obviously we've got a really great system you know but yeah, like if you have to borrow one from a from a mate or you have to share or whatever, yeah, you should certainly if you've got a long term plan of, of winning races or or doing well, you should certainly look at this sort of thing. Nice man. I, I remember a few years back you, you had a customer with a house in like Bright, Victoria that you had connected to attitude and, and uh, I think three or four bedrooms there were were um, you know, connected to the system and I sent a good mate of mine, James Nipper. Nipper, he, um, him and a few of his degenerate mates from Canberra went up and and lived there for two weeks, I think. Um, and I, I know they had a lot of fun. But is is that something that you know is a big thing these days? Like going to athletes' houses and and connecting their bedrooms up. Yeah, yeah. I suppose um, athletes. I mean, athletes are a hard one, like especially runners, because they don't they don't tend to invest too much in uh, in themselves, which this kind of is. Like even at the, the cheapest entry point, it's still a stack of money. And typically you're, you're um, I suppose you're running most of the time or you're training most of the time. So you're not really smashing the work and haven't got an abundance of money. So yeah, I see how it's a real investment. And yeah, but I, I, it's, you kind of have to do it. If you want to get to the pointy end, yeah. Yeah. Um, man, so I'll just get a quick rundown on what, you know, the typical thing in Australia is, is that um, our best runners, yeah. first of all, there's a lot Warfare. that goes on behind Warfare. the scenes. Exactly. Sorry. So you there, right? All right, okay, just going through what... Um, you know, typical is typical in Australia and around the world is that uh, a lot of our best runners will kind of go to Fours Creek, you know, three or four times a year up to that. You know, a lot will only go once. And the stints will be roughly from two weeks to, you know, some of the really top guys probably go for four week stints. Um, and then a lot of the, a lot of our best will then uh, spend some time like in St. Moritz or um, one of these, some of these other, you know, kind of places in North America or, or Europe during the year, um, kind of during the European season, do you know what I mean? And um, and kind of get another stint 
uh, in in Australia during Australia's winter. Um, you know, I do know of a lot that have sleep in tents, but it's not something that they tend to talk about. Do you know what I mean? Like I probably I could I could rattle off a dozen runners I know that they, that have tried to sleep in tents or have on and off step in tents that um, are very 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 well known runners. But um, you know, but I just wanted to touch on like what. Let's let's assume the average runner who's trying to make the Olympics and really trying to have a crack at making it, they never sleep in a tent, but they just they go to Force Creek once a year for four weeks, right? Obviously, that's better than nothing. But I just wanted to get your your opinion on if they if they also you know is that helping them much? Um, I think Force Creek's like seventeen hundred meters high. Um, what's your opinion on that versus versus sleep, just sleeping in a tent? Well, firstly, let's let's just put a, a cost value to, to going there for a month. Um, I think you're going to smash probably at least, I, I don't know, probably 800 to 1,000 a week on accommodation. Yeah. Or um, you're going to smash a day, get in there, day getting home, and that's probably going to cost you, let's say, 300 each way. It's like you kind of three-quarters of the way there to an altitude system straight out of the gate with just one altitude training block. I just don't see the cost value in that. Um, yeah, 1700 is enough to gain an adaption. Um, but in my opinion, you're better off um, staying at home, um, sleeping at, at whatever desired altitude you want. We recommend most people stay at sort of 2,500 metres, but, but load it or pair it with a training load so that you're not really... I suppose digging too deep and really burning the candle at both ends and then having a longer, more sustained approach to it. We sort of believe that uh, if you can, I suppose, tr sleep at altitude leading into a big block of training um, and then maintain that same altitude uh, throughout the training by sleeping at altitude on those days that you're not, I suppose, burying yourself in fatigue and then just sort of, I suppose, keeping the level really high and then doing that rather than putting all your eggs in that basket. And then with Falls Creek, I'm guessing that your load will be right up. There's a higher chance that you'll get injuries. Um, you put a lot of pressure on yourself to to go there and train the house down. Um, and so I just think that, I mean, for me, it was a real simple one because I was traveling virtually all year long. And so when I got home, there was zero chance I wanted to really go and do another altitude camp on, to, on top of early season racing or this and this. And it's like, it just, for me, it was, it was not possible. I just, I wanted to be at home and, and chill. And I felt like my training was better at home. And then on top of that, when I could really also, I suppose, say back to the team, listen, I've got a really good altitude system. I, I don't see the point in going away. I think it all sort of helped for me. And I think for for cycling and for athletes in the future, let's say uh, for anyone, through, if they've got a season long plan, um, yeah, yeah, if you want to have, want to go to altitude, yeah, that's fine. But I think that using a system into off season, on season injury, yeah, it's just all worthwhile. I yeah. believe. Dutchman. So this whole, like, I mean, I was just, you know, just from reading stuff over the years, like the whole train low, live high, or train high, live high, or what the other bloody combinations of that is, I can't remember. But, you know, like, should Pete, in your kind of experience, should athletes be training 
inside these tents or inside these attitude rooms or is it just a matter of spending x number of hours a night sleeping at that attitude is that is that the key or is the key actually training at the attitude as well um i'm a big proponent of sleeping at altitude because it just gets the job done so efficiently you don't need to alter your training level at all it's not like you have to have set intervals at at altitude, I, I think for sprinters, there can be some benefit in doing, let's say, short repeated sprints, and then it triggers this and that. And then also at um, training at altitude, you can actually um, do strength at altitude, and that will also um, increase your growth hormone um, uptake or whether it makes more. And then there's actually injury um, recovery as well. So it can be shown for training at, at altitude to, to increase that. Um, I mean, we deal with so many top tier athletes that it's like, we, we really do push the sleeping at it because you just don't need to change any routine or any training interval and, and you just kind of supersize your ability to absorb the oxygen, which is, is really at the heart of, part of winning, winning and doing well for running. Right. And I guess when you're training at sea level, I mean, you probably can get, you run faster, get more out of your body and kind of you know get better sessions done right yeah i mean i have heard people are saying oh you know what about positive oxygen more oxygen it's like well i think that has been looked into quite extensively and nothing that i've seen come through has got any merit to to support that um yeah, yeah i think it's, it's you've got to create stress to to make some you've got to yeah. break something to make it better you know yeah. so it's like do you know, like, for example, someone goes to Falls Creek for four weeks, like very few people go, very few Aussies go for four weeks. Let's say they go to Falls Creek for two or three weeks. Um, they get back, they get a bit of a benefit from it. How quickly does that wear off? Like, you know, if, if they're there in January and then Nationals is in late March, um, is it like, are they still getting benefit from that in late March or is it, you know, how... I, yeah, I just wonder. I've, I've always wondered that. Negligible. Um, I don't know. Like, there's 120 days uh, to your blood cycle, and placebo strong. But no, I wouldn't think so. I mean, it could. The thing is that if you you come back and you're really pushing hard, yeah, you get a bigger, better tra training stimulus from that, and you might be able to hold that level. But the adaption from altitude is probably tapering off to, to a certain extent at that point in time. Gotcha. So the other scenario is that like, let's say someone has a tent, they're sleeping in it whenever they're home. Let's say they live in Melbourne, like you do, and they're just sleeping in their tent, happy as, happy as anything. And then they're traveling for four months of the year, five months of the year. Like I presume it's pretty hard to put this thing in, you know, checked in luggage um, and just cruise around the world with it. Um, how does, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty hard. Yeah. I need mean, two systems. Well, <laughs> they need two complete bedroom systems yeah <laughs> um and find me around at least business for it uh yeah no that's screwed no no that, i would i would say for them um obviously do it do a big luck when they're home and then let's say if they're traveling around europe there's a good chance that they'll be passing by a, an altitude town you know that's at the right level so that might be one of those things one of those times that you can get that that big adaption or more adaption. But then 
also for something like um, the Paris Olympics, you, they should really have systems over there in the lead up to that. If they're going to be gunning for a medal spot, for sure. And I suspect that their their sporting body um, will be on top of them for um, for having access to that. I know that one of the um, one of the codes. Um, well, we're, we're talking to one of the codes about having some systems over there and lead up. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that if you are going for that spot, all your competitors are going to be doing it. Yeah. You know? Mate, I presume with you that, um, you know, like in the, in many industries, like let's just take the running shoe industry, right? Like you get an athlete running in your shoes, you can plaster it everywhere. Everyone gets excited. You see photos on Instagram, but I'm assuming that with, you know, your kind of business, you can't really like pop, people probably don't want to anyone to know that they're sleeping in a tent, you know, and there's like, you kind of got to keep it secret. And it's like that whole word of mouth and viral Instagram stuff. Like it's hard to achieve because, you know, some of the best athletes don't really want their competitors to know they're sleeping in them. Is that kind of true? Yeah. And that's really frustrating from a marketing point of view. It's like, you know, like we're getting closer and closer to a really polished finish, um, but yet we don't seem to be getting any more social retweets. What do you call it? These are re-Xs. Doesn't work for it. You know, like that's what's been frustrating about ours. And it's like we haven't got the budget to really be pushing. And some of these guys have, well, women have got massive followings. And it's like, it's like, come on, give a dog a bone. <laughs> we don't. We haven't got it. We have seen. Um, our tent in various pictures, uh, you know, with like like the partner of saying, you know, mo- like uh, some sort of moan about about sleeping at altitude without mentioning it. And it's like we know why you're you're moaning about that, um, but yeah, the, the systems are really comfortable as well. Don't get me wrong, um, but yeah, no, it's been really hard. Uh, I think we're getting closer. Um, we're moving into sort of more. I suppose people that want to live longer and, and be more efficient and, and those people seem to be a bit more keen to talk about it. Although yeah, it's just, it takes time and, and because we're also quite a long way out from all of our other competitors that what we're doing is, it is almost a um, hidden advantage still, but at some point in time, one's, someone's going to let the cat out of the bag, I'm sure. And then, I'll be like, oh, what's that? But um, yeah, until then, we're just sitting tight. Yeah, and give me an idea, like idea, like um, I remember when we were having um, we caught up a while back, and we were, yeah, like, there were some big names right in the world of professional cycling, and we're, I'm not going to obviously we're not going to say any names here, but um, but get, you know, just give everyone an idea, like we're we're talking about some of the best cyclists in the world use your system, right? Yeah, the majority of. Yeah. 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 And and we're not like the majority of them aren't in um bedroom systems. They're all using tent based systems. Yeah. Like this one is this particular tent system is yeah, it's winning a lot of races and world records globally, which, you know, we we cheer from the sidelines and it's really exciting for us. Um and then it's kind of like the dust settles and you get no more bumping sales and you're kind of like, oh, boys, nose to the grindstone again. <laughs> um, 
yeah. yeah, we are we are really fans of um of the system working super well and and yeah people getting good results from it. That's really awesome to see. There's a very very famous marathon runner. I'm not going to say his name, mate, because it's spit. And I heard you know I heard that he's using your system as well. Um, do, do you do these when these guys reach out? Um, are you do they get you to sign a like a confidentiality thing or whatever like or is it just an unwritten rule that you know how does all that work um no they don't get us to sign a confidentiality thing confidentiality thing um typically we we take it upon ourselves to to keep quiet if they're not going to post it post about it we're gonna we're gonna keep it pretty hush hush we tell friends um because we're excited about it um but no we've been pretty and actually, one of the the guy in Europe, Andrew, um, who used to own Rocket Espresso, um, I'm like, man, this is real cool, Andrew. Can we post about it? I was like, someone else's post. He's like, well, no. Nah. <laughs> oh, oh man, that's so annoying. Uh, um, let's yeah. just quickly. I'm going to keep just um, wrap it up soon, but I want to talk about blood testing, mate. Like in terms of blood testing prior to. A training camp or prior to using this system and blood testing like right after um you know i know you've probably done this a lot uh can you just explain it the basics of like i presume hematocrit levels and hemoglobin mass uh and that sort of stuff and and the evidence that you've seen yourself in terms of increases post um training stimulus with attitude yeah i think that i mean i always quote um studies because um, normally when people talk to me about it, you're not, you know, you can't really talk about what they're up to because that's not really yeah. agreed. Um, but yeah, typically it's four to five percent hemoglobin mass, and that sort of translates to, I think it's point six to point seven that it follows VO two max. Um, so it's it's pretty closely tied to that, and then we can you can see it, you know, like even with the we have SpO two on our on our um, app as well. And so you can actually see if you stay at a constant um, altitude, your SpO2 will come up after a while as well and your heart rate will come down. So, it, you know, like, so all of our stuff sort of, you can validate, self-validate without blood tests. But yeah, I would, in an ideal world, I'd get people to, to do a pre, uh, maybe even two pre um well blood tests and then get one during and post and then just to compare and and make sure you've got the right vitamins um, in your system and you know the whole time if you've got a really smart doctor or sports scientist that you're working in with they're really they're really helpful because they know the intricacies of what you're going through and that sort of thing but you know we sort of we always refer straight to the the data the facts yeah Nice. Hey, the other thing that I've just been curious about and I never really known, um, never really asked anyone this, but if you, if, if a huge race is coming up, right, there's like a massive, you know, like let's say athlete X is training for uh, the Boston Marathon, okay, and the Boston Marathon is, say, a week away, two weeks away, three weeks away, when, when do you stop sleeping in the tent? Like, do you have a couple days off prior to it or are you sleeping in the tent the night before? Um. Well, a lot of the studies seem to say, uh, would suggest that seven days before is ideal. 
I personally think that four days is, is plenty as well. Um, I suppose seven days allows you plenty of opportunity to, to get back to a normalized sleep, um, sleep pattern and that sort of thing. Um, because, yeah, you, you want to have really good rest leading into it and you want to, I suppose, I would keep it as boring as possible. Um, so even with that, um, there isn't a huge amount of data about tapering down your altitude, but I would suggest that that's, that's one of those things that's going to mature as well. You know, the more, the more data that we have behind it, the more um, recommendations we'll be able to do. Yeah. At the moment, we haven't got the data. I was reading like that kind of 10 hours a day is ideal, but like, man, it's been a long time since I've slept 10 hours in any one night, right? You know, um, especially since having kids, right? Like, but getting seven hours is pretty, is pretty shit hot for me these days. Like is, is, is the 10 hours something that is you need to hit? Uh, what if there's, if there's people that sleep seven, eight, nine hours, is it just, it, it, do you kind of just not worry about that? You just go to sleep and whatever you sleep, you sleep and you just get benefits from it. Or, or is it like a rule that you really need 10 hours? No, I mean, it depends who you talk to, you know, like I've sort of always been a fan of, of having a routine that, that I suppose you get good rest um, and good rest and good sleep hygiene enables you to, I suppose, push out to nine hours because you're probably actually not just sleeping eight hours. You probably go to bed, you might watch a movie or read a book, like that might take you 30 minutes. Uh, read a movie, uh, watch a movie, read a book. That might take you 30 minutes to 45 minutes here. Yeah, and then you might do your eight hours of sleep or your seven and a half hours of sleep. You're probably doing more than what you think, I'm guessing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and like with your wearable, you'll probably see that it gives you a sleep time. Like mine this morning was seven hours, 52 minutes. Um, oh, you're into all this high tech. What you, you wear like a, a watch that measured all that shit. Hey. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm a geek. I'm like, I'm more old school, mate. I like, I never put my watch on unless I'm going for a run. Then I just whack my, you know, my Garmin on and off I go. But yeah, you so you need to really kind of learn the numbers and start crunching all that. I think you can go by feel. I mean, it only validates what you already know, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, so if you've got no gauge on it and you're just a wild card, um, listen to your body completely and you're probably fine. Um, I think that athletes intrinsically just look, listen to our body the whole time and then the data just validates. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a geek. I wear my pocket protector on the inside. But yeah, no, nah, it's, I think the data's really cool. Like even heart rate variability is such a, such an interesting tool to use and heart, heart rate and highs and lows. And I just think it's, I'm a bit of a fan of it at the moment. I think it'll continue to. And is it like, what are the critical values that it measures when you're asleep? Like, is it the SpO2 level that is the kind of, is there an alarm set when it goes below like 87% or 88% or 86% or something like that? Or is, or does that never really happen? Does it always? Um, no, typically, I mean, everyone's different. You know, everyone's got different hematocrit levels, hemoglobin mass and also on top of that people are different hydrated differently and so all of those things play a real part um i would i typically check for my your blood oxygen content 
uh, or SpO2. And then I also check out my heart rate as well. So if I've got a really high heart rate and these altitude spaces do, I suppose, put a bit of a magnifying glass over that. So if you're getting anywhere near sick, your heart rate will spike a lot then as well. Um, so I always sort of check on, check on that as well. And I believe that a low heart rate value is a very good sign that you're well rested. Um, yeah. It's not always accurate. Uh, last night, I mean, I, I feel pretty pretty sleep deprived and my heart rate got to 46 last night. It was fairly low for me. Um, but yeah, it's, you got to keep an eye on your body. But yeah, it's really just, I mean, it just causes you, these systems cause you stress and then your body adapts by making more efficient cells. Yeah. It's pretty. And I guess like if you're, if you're asleep and you, let's say maybe you're something, you're a gung-ho athlete, you, you just whack it up to as high as it will go you, and you try and sleep, but then um, you kind of, you're an hour, you actually do get to sleep. You're an hour into sleep. Your heart rate starts, starts spiking. The SpO2 starts dropping. Um, you're probably going to wake up, right? Like, you know, I'm just thinking at the risk. Oh, yeah. Of, like, yeah, yeah. It's hard to sleep through that. Oh, you couldn't sleep through it. It's, it would be so, you know, we, we educate people so much about this. You know, yeah. we just say, just go up moderately. You'll, you'll get better stimulus response. You'll sleep well. You'll train well. Um, but people, some people don't listen, which is really <laughs> frustrating for us because we put so much of an effort into it. Um, but then again, typically, one guy recently, same sort of thing. Oh, no, 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 I'm good. I can sleep at whatever. My SpO2 is really high. doesn't affect me at all. Oh, yeah, how high is your heart rate? Oh, mate, it's through the roof. It's just like <laughs> just sleep at a moderate level. Like It's just not rocket science, like, especially when you've got someone like me that's just like battery getting in. Like, I must have said to this guy five or six times and you're kind of whacking your head against the wall, but it's just... I suppose it's just part of it. Oh, I can just imagine, man. There's so so many, you know, whatever, just testosterone-filled runners just thinking that they can whack it straight up to the maximum and, you know, they'll be sweet. But that's life. Um, hey, Rico, how how much are these units, before we finish up, how much are, are these units for everyone listening? Just um, a rough guide on the tent versus um, maybe a room. So I, I presume the room setup, it depends on how big your bloody room is. Like if you're... If you live in a cubicle, if you sleep in a cubicle, it's probably going to be cheaper set up than if you sleep in some mansion of a bedroom, right? But can you just give everyone a bit of a guideline? I think the, we've actually just got the training cloud that we've had uh, for just sort of training in. You can actually fit a single bed in there. I think that's 5,900 uh, with GST. And then yeah. the sleep cloud queen is 6.9. And yeah. then the king is 7.5. And then bedrooms start from sort of 10,000 and go up as go up. high as you'd like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of yeah. up to sort of 30, 30 odd thousand um, yeah, for yeah. the really, really big ones. I mean, there's been a few Fours Creek, uh, Fours Creek trips over the years with that I've gone on that I've blown a couple K. So, um, yeah, I mean, they add up, you know. Um, hey, lastly, mate, like if I told my wife that I wanted to get a tent, oh, I should probably look at me and like, like I was you know, some sort of like a deranged like twit, you know, and just tell, and, and put me in my place. Like, how do you find it like with people that have a partner that wants to sleep, um, you know, next to their partner and not in a separate room? Do they just, you know, how does that go down? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on... I, I, I find it funny when these partners, like they've been with this person their whole life, and this is with professional athletes as well. You know, like, let's say, just trying to think of, you know, multi-million euro a year contract their partner is, and they're saying to their, their wife, listen, honey, we've got to sleep in this altitude tent. And the, the partner's like, I ain't doing that. It's like, I'm paid a stack load of money. Like, I, I was doing this before you were even on the scene, and this is what pays for your life. And, like, I find that insane, you know? Oh, but, that happens a lot, does it? That... Yeah, yeah. To me, that sounds yeah, definitely does. Yeah, like if, yeah. You, if you're making a big bucks, I mean, shit. Like that's it's just that's just part of the job, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, we sort of we typically arm the um, purchaser with all the information they would need to convince their significant other that it's a great <laughs> idea for their health and well-being, and it is. You know, like it, yeah, you live longer and and all sorts of nice catchy phrases and yeah, yeah, but. Yeah, I mean, some reluctant people out there. Yeah, I guess like too much oxygen isn't a good thing. Like a lot of the oldest people in the world live at altitude in Ethiopia and um, you know Nepal and all that sort of stuff. Like it's a, obviously it's a healthy thing for longevity. Yeah, it's like one of those things. It's like convincing people to drink a little bit more water than they would like. It's like it's so good for you and so beneficial, and. Most people just do it, but some people really drag their heels. It's like, you will feel better. It's very simple. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like we sort of don't spend too much energy on those sorts of people. We're kind of like, yeah. okay, good luck. Good luck with that. Hey, it's been a good chat. I've learned a lot. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of people out there that learn a lot, have learned a lot as well. And uh, thanks for your time. And it was good to catch up, mate. Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, Hopefully we'll come in um, coffee and beer uh, again soon. Another okay. dinner would be cool. Nice. Looking forward to it. Cheers, mate. Anyway, thank you. Vivian Chariot in Greenland. On the outside, Ollie Hall of Australia comes. Jake Whiteman has just spent. It's going to be Chariot and Hall who 